The CHIPS Act shoveled billions of taxpayer dollars to the microelectronics industry. One reason for making more circuits domestically is greater cybersecurity and supply assurance. Now a sort of overlooked piece of the electronic supply chain is gaining attention in Congress. The boards the chips are mounted on. Federal Drive host Tom Temin got more from the executive director of the Printed Circuit Board Association of America, David Schild. And I guess we spoke quite a number of months ago about the need for the supply chain and cyber assurance of the substrate that is the backbone of all electronics. What is the new development and what's going on on Capitol Hill? A lot of great progress since the last time we spoke. In March, President-designated printed circuit boards and integrated circuit substrates as a critical federal technology under the Defense Production Act. And as you probably know, we've been hearing a lot about that act in, in recent years. We, we used it during COVID to make ventilators a lot faster. Uh, that designation is very important because it drops a lot of red tape and frees up the government to move much more quickly to acquire American-made printed circuit boards and integrated circuit substrates. So that's tremendous progress. Also, a lot going on on Capitol Hill. The National Defense Authorization Act, once again, pushing the Pentagon to secure its microelectronics supply chains, especially in the commercial off-the-shelf space, which is very important. And then we've got standalone legislation, a sort of our version of the CHIPS Act, which is moving forward to hopefully shore up this critical industry. And uh, as we say, chips don't float. All these wonderful semiconductors that we're going to manufacture in the United States need integrated circuit substrates and boards to do their jobs. We think that we should make the entire technology stack right here in America. And there is a cybersecurity issue factor to this. Is that fair to say? Because something could be embedded in a circuit board. These are not simple structures, and they're multi-layer, and there's interconnection among the layers. Someone could slip a tiny chip into a circuit board, even, I imagine. It's a point of great concern for officials throughout the national security establishment that we have a trusted microelectronics supply chain. And, of course, as we have pushed more and more production and research and development and innovation overseas, I think it's introduced some risk that we otherwise would not tolerate in our supply chains. And so, yeah, being able to say that we know where these things are manufactured, we know who's doing the manufacturing, it's certainly important for anybody who's in federal acquisition. I would think, you know, just from a physical standpoint, someone could add a trace that wasn't in the original design that could create a backdoor to monitor. There's all kinds of ways of getting into what's going on in a circuit other than just hacking it from the signal that's output. And so if you could adjust that output signal without the knowledge of the person that built the board, built the circuit in these embedded systems, then you could do a lot of damage on the cyber front. Boards are highly engineered pieces of technology. Far from being simple green plastic, we're actually talking about a complex laminate of woven glass, precious metals like gold, copper, certainly any number of specialty chemical formulations. And there's a lot of engineering at a very small nanometer level even that goes into production. So you're absolutely right. It would be difficult to look at a board and say with any degree of surety, we know that this is something that's safe for the end user, which is, again, why we want to bring back production. We've fallen off a cliff in terms of where we used to be. At one time, 30% of printed circuit boards were made in the United States. That was 2,200 companies. Today, it's less than 150 companies, and that constitutes only 4% of global market share. So the U.S. that invented this technology no longer owns production of it or even controls a sizable percentage of the portfolio. And there's circuit boards and there's circuit boards. I mean, the main card in a high-end, say, router, you know, is an extremely complicated piece. But then there's also circuit boards that go into maybe a hearing aid, a little tiny thing with only a couple of layers and, you know, one chip on it, this type of thing. So the question is, what is the distribution by technology of origin of manufacture? So that's a great point. Everything from 
F-150s to F-35s is going to have a printed circuit board. Absolutely. If electricity is running through it today and you know your listeners can look around their home or office and printed circuit boards are everywhere. They're a ubiquitous piece of technology. But certainly we are not pushing for the federal government to bring back the boards that you would find inside uh, dishwashers and garage door openers and thermostats. At a very large scale in the commercial marketplace, what are simpler technologies are going to stay in overseas production. Market forces have, have seen to that. But we think in high-tech spaces like banking, critical infrastructure, certainly the energy grid, medical devices. Certainly those are places, I think, where we need to have more production in the United States. And you think about everything outside of traditional defense applications that depends on trusted microelectronics, right? The ability for us to do our banking, the ability for the lights to stay on, certainly everything that's happening in decarbonization, EV chargers, electric vehicles, all of these things are dependent on PCBs and substrates. I think it makes sense to know that we control a sizable portion of that supply chain. And by the way, garage doors, they're on the internet now too these days. Absolutely. We're speaking with David Schild. He's executive director of the Printed Circuit Board Association of America. And for the military or anyone that, or contractors, you know, that have critical circuitry, there's another cyber danger, and that is if the board is not only made but stuffed overseas in the final production assembly situation, the wave soldering gear, that means the critical circuits themselves have to be shipped to where the boards are assembled and come back, which is another vulnerability. Yes, supply chain resiliency has been getting so much attention lately, right? Along with this idea of de-risking and decoupling from foreign sourcing. And you saw throughout the National Defense Authorization Act, a lot of language talking about prevention of foreign ownership and control and influence over our critical supply chains. If you say we're going to make new semiconductors in places like Ohio and Arizona, I don't think that the vision is that those products will then have to get shipped across an ocean for the next part of the ecosystem, the next part of the stack, to then come back to the United States, perhaps for final assembly and on to store shelves or end users. I think that's not the vision that the administration and Congress are seeking. Manufacturing nodes, regional hubs, that's what you hear Secretary Raimondo talking about. I think those are really the future. All right. And then there's legislation, which has been in the House a couple of times. Now your bill is back in. It's called H.R. 3249, Protecting Circuit Boards and Substrates. What's the backing of it and what's the real chances of anything happening this session? Because, you know, they've got a few other things ahead of that. It's a challenging time for anyone who's trying to move policy forward in Washington. But I will say that I think the wind is at our back in terms of congressional focus on the need to make more things here in America and certainly confront the pacing threat that's out there from a national security perspective. The PCBs Act is very much focused on two things, a direct amount of support for our industry in the same way that the CHIPS Act supported the semiconductor industry so that we can hire new workers, so that we can break ground on new facilities, buy the critical tooling that's necessary to produce PCBs. I think more importantly, a tax credit for people buying printed circuit boards accomplishes what so many VPs of ops or heads of supply chain want to do right now. They want to diversify their supply chains. They want to de-risk. They want to perhaps de-emphasize their dependence on Asia. But how do they do that when the bottom line doesn't support those moves? A tax credit to say when you buy American, we're going to bring these costs into a competitive position. We think that builds the demand signal that's necessary to truly spur a manufacturing surge. And how labor-intensive are high-end board making? I mean, a lot of this is automated, which means the more things are automated, the less they need to be in China or Southeast Asia. Automation is increasingly a part of our business, but I will tell you, if you walk through a PCV facility, it's a very fascinating mix of 
old school and new school manufacturing. You see a lot of chemical processes to do the etching work, to layer and plate the copper that we need, of mm-hmm. course, to build PCBs. And at the same time, you have clean rooms and folks in you know the bunny suits doing you know very small and very precise work to lay down critical pathways and actually make the boards work. And I'm so glad you talk about this because I was in a facility recently and we have trained technicians doing visual inspections of these boards because we can't yet teach a computer or a camera to make sure that those connections are reliable in the same way that a highly trained technician in the human eye can do that work. So there's still very high touch and highly educated, skilled labor involved in this process. And so we think from a jobs perspective, of course, you know, in the same way semiconductor factories are going to lead to a lot of economic development, uh, we're ready to put thousands of people to work building PCBs. David Schild is executive director of the Printed Circuit Board Association of America, speaking there with Federal Drive host Tom Temin. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive, and you can also find these interviews wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're we're going through a a culture project at our work. Oh, great. It's it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I I 
I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, 
and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in- would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, 
thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life, and I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.